You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. If you haven't been with us, um, for the last year, year and a half, we have been walking through the Gospel of John. We do this through books of the Bible. We go left to right. We don't skip over passages. And in doing so, when we mapped out this gospel, when we mapped out this sermon series, we did so in four distinct sections. First section is in the beginning. In the beginning was God, and the Word was with God, and He was the Word, and they were all together. And in this, John has been painting the big picture that from the beginning, the triune God had one story to tell. Okay? Then we see the section of signs of a Savior. We see how Christ has shown His deity through His signs and efforts to restore people. Then we moved into teachings of a good shepherd where we see Jesus the good shepherd helping uh, His disciples, helping the people that are following Him, and even helping the people that aren't following Him understand some spiritual realities through the circumstances in His teachings. And then we moved, which we're in right now, into a new life where chapter 18, a few months ago, we see Jesus beginning his passion ministry, finishing with his reappearance, which we read of uh, the last few weeks, and finishing this gospel account. It's just a week left in the book of John, which is, is crazy after a, over a year of walking through this account, and, and I'm very excited that I have the privilege of doing, being the penultimate, uh, the second to last here sermon in this series and so today what I want to do what I want to start off with is a bit of an application question usually we do these applications at the end for you to reflect on for you to think about for you to take back with you to talk about in gospel community to talk about with your family to pray about to journal about I'm going to start off that from the beginning here's my question now uh, admittedly this would take a a very self-aware person someone who's honest with themselves, someone who's vulnerable. So come into this question with that in mind. Honesty with yourself, with others. In what ways, here's my question, in what ways does your old self or your old way of life, your life before you knew Jesus, in what ways does your old self show itself in the day-to-day of your new life in Christ? In what ways does that old you peer its head? Now we know as Christ followers that 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We know that at Romans 4 that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. We know that from Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We know that we are adopted sons and daughters. We know that we are co-heirs with Christ, inheriting the kingdom of God. Maybe you've experienced firsthand the blessing of God in a tangible way. Maybe you've experienced something that you can only attribute that this was the hand of God in my life. Maybe you've seen or experienced God move in in powerful ways maybe you have had the blessing of experiencing maybe a family member or someone you love maybe a friend or a neighbor come to faith in Christ that's incredible 
Right? Maybe you've witnessed the chains of addiction fall off from someone. Maybe you've witnessed the chains of addiction fall from you. And yet, we know these things to be true, but yet that old self can poke its head up, can it? What areas of your life does that happen? When do you see that happen most often? What are you believing in those moments when that old self comes back to life? We know that we have been forgiven of the penalty and the power of sin, but the presence of sin is still with us as we've talked about the last few weeks. When does that old self show up again? And a follow-up, how often do you get a sense that you're disconnected from God? Again, this takes some real honest thought and reflection. When do you feel like you are most disconnected from God and from the people of God? When does it feel most often that you're just kind of going through the motions of this Christian life? You just kind of set the autopilot and you, you do the things you ought to do with no real connection to the source. When is that? For reflection, a great thing to talk about and discuss in gospel community. Shameless plug there. All right. Well, this morning we find ourselves in a bit of a similar situation with the disciples, specifically Peter. Right? We see his old self festering up into this newness that he has been shown. When we mapped out this sermon series, it worked out to, that it fell on me to preach uh, a handful of sermons that really delve deep into a character, into Peter as being a part of uh, a lot of these sermons that I've had the opportunity to preach. In the upper room, the last moments that, that Jesus was, and that by believing, you may, ha- you may have life in his name. This is the thesis of all of Scripture, but specifically the thesis that John is driving home through this Gospel account. Now, why does he not end there? Well, obviously he has something more important. John, inspired by the Spirit of God, opens it back up and pins this chapter. That's incredible. That's important for us. We ought to take a listen. We know that this Word of God is useful is well one it's god breathed it's useful for teaching correcting rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of god is thoroughly equipped for every good work we know that this word isn't just words and facts on paper we know that it is is living and active it's sharper than a double-edged sword it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow this word judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart one of my favorite verses that pastor dude often shares is is psalm 119 105 and this word is a lamp into our feet and a light unto our path right this word is important john 21 is important so today as we open this holy word we will learn from him we will learn from jesus how ministry will be to carried out and we will see the final sign of the Savior. When I was thinking about it, those four mini-series in the beginning, Signs of a Savior, Teachings of a Good Shepherd, and A New Life, they're all in chapter 21. There's all bits of those four sections that we read here 
in chapter 21. So the way I've organized this sermon, if you're a note taker, if you like that kind of stuff, uh, I've divided into three sections, verses 1 through 3, we're going to set the stage, verses 4 through 8, we will see another miracle and another blessing, and then verses 9 through 14, we'll see a breakfast. Let's get into it, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. After this, he says, so after what? What are, they, what are they talking about? Well, the last couple weeks, we've seen Jesus in his post-resurrection state. He has revealed himself to his, to his disciples two weeks ago. We read that he has revealed himself to the first person of Mary Magdalene, right? He reveals himself to his disciples. We read last week. He shows himself to doubting Thomas. He lets him put his hand in the scars, and, and he sees and he reveals that this is the Lord, this is Jesus, and he gives the Holy Spirit and the mission to his disciples. So after that, he instructs them, we read in, a, in, a, in the Gospel of Mark, to, he tells them to go here to the Sea of Galilee. Now the, it says the, the Sea of Tiberias, this is the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is just like the Roman's name of the Sea of Galilee. Simon Peter, he's assuming their role of leader. Once again, this is important that it's mentioned here in John because the last thing we know of Peter before the post-resurrection of Jesus is that, is that Peter has denied him and he has accursed those who follow him. But now we read that he is back with the gang, right? We're going to see next week him being restored in fullness, reinstalled as an apostle. And here's a little bit of a note. Whenever John... Uh, calls Peter Simon Peter. It's kind of like whenever your parents say your full name. It's kind of, it's a reminder, it should be a reminder to us that when he says Simon Peter, it's a way of letting you know he's kind of acting in his old self. He's only, he's acting in his old way again. Thomas is here, fresh off his life-changing encounter. Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, which are uh, James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder. is a cool nickname, right? Two others that are unnamed. And if, there, if it was important, it would have been noted here. But what that means, what that tells us, is that there are seven here in total. There are seven here in total. We know, one, that that's not the full group. But we also know that who John is writing to matters. We know that the other gospel writers, their audience was either to, um, to Jews or to uh, Gentiles or to Romans in particular. Scholars agree that the book of the gospel of John is written to a more broad audience. The consideration is that he's writing to the world. And the world who is receiving this text would understand that seven is a big number. Seven is a, a number in Jewish culture that represents perfection, that represents completion. So these numbers, these details, not only give credibility to his writing and understanding, but 
it also signifies something that the readers, readers would understand that we might not because of our context. Peter says, what does he say? I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Now, the disciples potentially weary at this time. You know, even though Jesus has been revealed, they've been through a lot. They've seen the power and majesty of Jesus at hand, and then they've seen him handed over to death, and they've seen him die, and now they've seen him resurrected. But potentially, they're ready to abandon the mission that Christ has given them. Maybe they're, they're ready to just go back to what feels normal. And so they say, I'll go with you. I'll go fishing with you. This is something that they have known before. And isn't this relatable? We are all creatures of habit. Even if that habit isn't the best thing for us, we know that familiarity is comforting. Amen? Yeah. You know, but it can also, familiarity can be a, a prisoner sometimes too. I mean, imagine if, a, uh, imagine if a prisoner is set free from jail and he's walking and he's experiencing and tasting and seeing the goodness of the world outside of prison, but then night comes and he doesn't know. He's just so used to laying in that jail cell that when he, it's time to go to bed, he doesn't make a cot under the trees and sleep under the stars, but because of his familiarity, he goes back into the jail cell and goes to sleep. Right? We are a people because familiarity and comfort, we, we're, we would rather stay in a known misery than the potential of something that's unknown. It's a condition of the human heart, the con- our human condition. Right? And so we see it here with the disciples. Peter's like, you know, don't know what's going on in Peter. Maybe, maybe he's still working through his denial. I'm going to do something that's familiar. I'm going to go fish. And the others follow suit. Now, here's a little bit of a leadership sidebar. Okay, we could have a whole sermon on sermon series about the leadership of Jesus and how leadership is important. Leadership is an important, valuable asset in our world, right? But leadership can, can either be really good if you have a good leader or really bad if you have a bad leader. Another application pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your bosses. Pray for government officials. Pray for the leadership that is in your life. Pray for your teachers. Pray for the people that are influencing you. Because it could be a very good thing. It could also be a very bad thing. The question I have is, who are your biggest influences? Who are the people that are shaping the way that you think on a daily basis? I listened to a TED Talk one time and a guy said, You are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So what does that say about who is influencing your thoughts? Who is leading your thoughts mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Who is leading you in that? We know Peter, I'll probably hit on this later, but Peter, he is very much a, uh, what we call a pace setter, right? He is setting the pace. He's 100 miles an hour. Sometimes, most of the time, it's in the bad, wrong direction, right? Sometimes, we'll see here, it's, it's good. But what happens? They go fishing, and um, maybe, for some of us, the most relatable passage of all of Scripture, they caught nothing. 
right? Got a few fishermen in the house, a good joke there. Thank you for that, Willis. Appreciate the, the pity laugh on that. I uh, thought that would do better. Yeah. But <laughs> they are reminded in this of their inadequacy. They're reminded of their inability to do what they're most confident in. These men were fishermen by trade. They have caught thousands of fish in their life. They come up with a goose egg on this night. What's that mean? As they're reminded of their inadequacy and inability to do what they're most confident in, this brought to mind 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. This is, this is where Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, I planted, Apollo swattered, but it is God who causes the growth. It's a grace of God to remind us that even the things we think we are quote-unquote good at, that it is from Him and ultimately for Him. I don't care if you're a great teacher, a great pilot, a great author, a great doctor, a great whatever you are, that is from the Lord and it is for the Lord. Let's be reminded of that this morning. It's easy to become prideful and think, now nah, I don't need help. But these guys were professional fishermen, what they did for a living. I'm sure they've had bad days out on the Sea of Galilee. But this here, this sign of the Savior that we're going to read next is important. Verses 4 through 8. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John referring to himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards going off. Maybe some symbolism here with day breaking, right? Maybe it was the sun coming up on this new reality that the disciples find themselves in. They can't quite see, they can't quite tell that this is Jesus on shore. Maybe there's a fog, maybe they're just that far enough away, their sight isn't, isn't good enough. But Jesus greets them by saying, children, do you have any fish? You kind of hear a little bit of a, a mocking undertone in this, right? Children, not, hey men, fishermen, do you have any fish? Did you catch anything? So children, little ones. This word in Greek is paideia. It's where we get our word pediatrics from. This is a term of beneathness, right? And so Jesus asks a question. He asks the question, have you caught any fish? We have seen a pattern of these types of questions lately, but they're all throughout Scripture. When Jesus is asking this question, it isn't to gain information. He knows all. He is asking a question, putting a mirror up in front of them to reveal something to them about himself and about the situation. 
We see this a couple weeks ago. He asked Mary Magdalene, I was fortunate enough to preach, he says, Mary Magdalene, whom are you seeking? Knowing full well that it was him that she was seeking. Right? Throughout his uh, sham trial, he was asked, he asked many rhetorical questions to the people in power, ultimately leading them to the understanding is the only reason that they have power enough to do anything is because he has granted them the power over him. And then we see in the Garden of Eden for the first time when Adam and Eve were naked and hiding in their shame, what does God ask? God asks the question, where are you? Who told you you were naked? As if God didn't know. But when God does this, when he asks these rhetorical questions like this, it's more of a statement. And this statement is an opportunity for us to respond in confession, to respond in humility with, where are we? Where are you? He might have done this to bring the guys fishing to a point of confession of failure so that they would clearly see that what would follow would be Jesus' work and not theirs. Jesus provides an opportunity for confession to repent and reorient our lives that he is in control. This is why we do this every week at Mercy's Door. We cultivate the rhythm of reflection in that as we see God rightly, that should lead us to reorient that I am not right. In and of myself, I have fallen short of the glory of God and I need him to again meet me where I am not. God is sovereign. In verse 6, Jesus gives fishing advice. I think this is awesome uh, and pretty funny. If they would just cast their net on the right side, they would find some fish. He says, have you, have you tried? They got, the, they got the net on the left side of the boat as if they probably fished this area because they were out there all night, remember? They got the net on this left side, and he says, hey, why don't you go ahead and, he tried it over there. You have someone like that when you're fishing? Well, why don't you just try a buzz bait, you know? So just throw it over to that left side. I just find this laughable. It's like such an insignificant change. They're thinking like, all right, we'll put the nets over here. The thought that just a few feet away is all they missed, is all they missed by for this huge haul of fish. This demonstrates God, his sovereignty and his fullness of control of the situation. Now, in Signs of a Savior, in that mini-series, we talked about every sign and every miracle that Jesus accomplishes is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Anytime you see God, you see Jesus do a miracle, it is then, shortly after, he is revealing something about the spiritual nature of man. He's revealing when he, when he in the first time when he breaks bread and he feeds the, the multitudes, shortly after that, he comes back with, I am the bread of life. No one will hunger if they come after me. Okay? He does this in a way to demonstrate his sovereignty and his control. One commentator remarked, I have it up here, the reason for the disciples' obedience, as they put the net on the left side or the right side, 
The reason for the disciples' obedience is not as important as the fact of it. They had not yet obeyed Jesus' command. They would have failed to catch any fish. However, because they obeyed, they experienced overwhelming success, success far exceeding their natural ability. John 15.5 tells us that Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. What a picture we see in this story. These men who knew how to fish, who had done this their whole life. The physical reality of the spiritual truth here. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. You know when you're putting something together like an Ikea furniture or a grill or something like that, and in the instructions, I always find myself, I'll read the instructions and it's like, Tighten this bolt down by hand, but don't tighten it all the way. You know what I'm talking about? Well, nine out of ten times, what I do is I crank that sucker down. You know, you with me? I'm like, well, it's fine. I'll figure it out later. And I tighten it way too tight. And then what happens in like four or five steps down the instructions, right? I find myself, I got to back this thing out and I got to backtrack a little bit because I didn't do what the manufacturer told me. It's, it's as if the manufacturer knows that what you're putting together needs a little wiggle room. It needs, it's like they know what's best for what they created. Right? But I'm like, eh, I think I can. Our Father knows best. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. This triggers something of a wake-up call for John remembering this seems very familiar right other disciples there's been another time when we were fishing caught nothing a man on the on the shore tells us to put our nets over here and then all of a sudden we have a huge bounty of fish right this should trigger something and what does john respond with he says to peter he says it is the lord right I love this quote from A.W. Pink. He says, And what a lesson is here again for the Lord's servants. When He grants success to our labors, when the gospel net in our hands gathers fishes, let us not forget to own it is the Lord. John is like, I know another man who deals with fish like this. He brings it to the attention, the attention of Peter and the rest of the group. And, and true to form, what does Peter do? He's like, I, don't, I came out here to fish. I came out here that our nets would be full of fish. Forgetting that whole purpose of why he was out to fish, puts on his robe, he jumps in, he starts getting after it 100 yards away. It was the last time you swam 100 yards. I don't know. I mean, swimming 100 yards just because... The better thing is there. The better thing of Jesus is there. He didn't care about the boat. He didn't care about the nets. He didn't care about the fish that were caught. What mattered to him was that the Lord was there. And I find that super encouraging, super interesting, super challenging. This is the only 
post-resurrection miracle that is recorded in Scripture. And like I said earlier, this is the last of the miracles that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. It's interesting that we see this coming to a head here with something so simple as breakfast. Right? Verse 9. When they got out on land and saw the charcoal fire in place, the fish laid it out on the, I'm sorry, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's have breakfast. It's biblical to have breakfast, see? When the disciples were bringing the fish from the boats, there was Jesus preparing ahead of time their food. I think this is significant. Jesus has just granted them a miracle of, count, of catching 153 fish, but he's already on shore preparing something for them. Despite what they have already, what they could bring to the table, he is providing for them out of his abundance. He is preparing for them, and it's a very important detail that he's doing this at a charcoal fire. The only other account that we read of in the New Testament of a charcoal fire is when Peter is denying Jesus. He's warming himself by the fire, and he denies Jesus for the third time. The rooster crows, Jesus makes eye contact with him, and he is undone. Now think of everything Peter's going through in his mind right now. Think of the symbolism. Even the detail of the smell for Peter is recalling for him his greatest failure. But look, he sees his Lord, he hasn't abandoned him. He is there waiting for him, patient with him, long-suffering. Do you, you feel in your life that when that old self creeps in, do you feel like you have a picture of, a, a, of your Lord and Savior has abandoned you? Have you denied him to his face three times? And yet he is here waiting for him, preparing breakfast for him. He's already prepared them food. And this had to remind the men of the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes. At that miracle, Jesus did the full work of multiplying fish and loaves to feed the masses. Here the miracle, surely by his sovereign hands, Uh, was made effective by the actions of the disciples, but by obedience to what they told them to do. So earlier, a a young boy has just a few fishes and some loaves, and Jesus in his sovereign, powerful, all-creating hand multiplies them, right? Now, this blessing is due to the disciples' obedience to his word. He says, cast your net over here. They do it. They reap the benefits of it. Right? So this is significant. This shows Jesus' divine wisdom in knowing how ministry is going to happen, but it also shows his divine sovereignty by 
enabling us to do ministry through the work of the Spirit. He gives us the power. He tells us how to do ministry. He tells us how to love and serve. He tells us what the gospel is to share this gospel. And then He puts the fish in the net. He's the one that accomplishes the act of obedience that He tells us to do. This is so freeing. You are not in control. That's a good thing. I heard, it, I heard one pastor say, sharing the gospel is like opening the, opening the gate to let the lion out. We need to be faithful to share the gospel, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and allow Him to put the fish in the net. It will not come back void. The real effectiveness and strength is found in relying on Jesus. And the, you know this model... This teaching for effective ministry that we, what I said before, this is the model for any supernatural work to follow it. And obedience, as people follow Jesus and listen to him in obedience, the power of God falls. We look at disciples. The disciples raised people from the dead. Prayer movements. George Mueller. He's recorded of writing down thousands of prayers and not telling anyone about them, but just praying to God and seeing them answered. Revivals that have swept through the people of God in obedience and faithfulness to Him. Maybe the marriage that's been restored, that it was looking like it was lost, by supernatural power of the Lord has restored it. This is the power of all of these are from the power of Jesus. I love the song that we sing. Maybe we don't sing it enough. But the hook of it says, Yet not I, but Christ through me. All right, what a great song. Verse 12, he says, Come and have breakfast. An interesting note here. Three different occasions where Jesus says come. In John chapter 1, in the beginning, he says, Come and see. This is where Jesus calls his first disciples. Come and see, and I will make you fishers of men. Right? In John chapter 7, he says, come and drink at the Feast of Booths. Jesus calls out anyone. He says, if anyone thirsts, let them come and find me and drink. And now here in John 21, he says, come and eat. Come and eat. I love this story, and I've really grown. I loved Peter before. I love his testimony. But I just love this encounter specifically with Jesus in front of the charcoal fire. Jesus, this is very important, Jesus was not in a rush to deal with Peter. He had just jumped in the water. He's probably cold. He's hungry. He's been up all night, probably tired. Jesus had the opportunity to lay it on thick. He could have put Peter in his place right here. But what does he do? He's patient with him. And he would feed Peter, deal with his most pressing physical needs before he dealt with his spiritual ones. I am guilty of laying it on thick and not dealing with the tangible needs of my kids, or my wife, or maybe you before I go straight to truth. He provided all of this before he dealt with what we read next in Peter's restoration that we will next week. 
I had a spiritual mentor of mine. As many of you know, we've been in ministry our whole uh, you know, professional careers. And this, this one uh, mentor of mine, he would always say this thing in regards to ministry. He would always say, hey, Brett, you know, they, meaning people that I'm ministering to, he'd say, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't know how much, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People surely need the truth of the gospel. They need the fact, they need me to tell them and reveal to them, share with them, that they are broken beyond measure. You do not know how broken you are. The truth of the gospel is that in Christ, you are more loved and forgiven than you could possibly imagine. They need the truth of the gospel, but they also need the grace of the gospel. They need the loving kindness that that wellness, that goodness offers. I remember a particular time when I was, uh, my cat, the lovely Catherine Barton, we were working, um, we worked for a number of years in college ministry, and this was a particularly difficult time for me in this season. And many times a week, I would walk into the cafeteria on the college campus that we were at in Arkansas, and I would go to sit with some people and just, you know, hang out, talk to them, you know, do, do my thing. And people after people would get up and leave. And it was a little disheartening because I'm only there to help them. I only care about them and their spiritual well-being, but they would leave, and I, I would go back to this mentor of mine, and he would often say, you know, Brett, they don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And, and probably, I, he was right, probably I was a little forceful maybe or aggressive in me sharing the goodness without also sharing the tangible needs of feeding them and caring about them. He, he would often say he used this analogy that grace and truth is like a zero-turn lawnmower. You ever been on one of those? You know what I'm talking about? Those zero-turn lawnmowers, it's like, if you, if you give all truth, you're going to be spinning around in a circle. If you give all grace, you're going to be spinning around in a circle. But the only way you can move forward is if both grace and truth are present. I've had the opportunity to serve on some mission teams across in, my, in my life, and it is a shame whenever people come to the mission field and bring the grace and the healing and uh, they dig wells, and they bring uh, medical care, and they do all, it's incredible. But it is a shame if it's not backed up with why they are coming. The gift that has been given to me in Jesus compels me to give you these good gifts because I too was once broken and in desperate need, but Jesus has met me in my neediness. I've also been on mission trips where the presentations were incredible. The, the spoken, the, it was translated in their, wor- in their language, or it has been so clearly understood, so clearly declared. The gospel has been so clearly declared, but yet it is only words and not, come have breakfast. Grace and truth is this aroma to the world that what we have is different. What we have is different. Just grace, it can lead to a therapeutic gospel, and no change is ever made. This puts us in danger of leaving people thinking they are well-fed and fine spiritually, when in reality, they're no better than someone who's just ultra-moral. But 
just truth can leave people with no hope. They get a sense that God is mean or disgruntled and that every, everything is up to them to change. It's both grace and truth, and we see that on display by Jesus' actions here. He is going to deal with Peter's spiritual need. But he does first by rolling out the red carpets of meeting his physical needs. In the course of this story, Jesus called to mind things that he has already walked with them through in spreading the kingdom of God. What does he do? He always reminds them of who he is. He reminds them of what he's done, what he has already shown them, and how to strengthen and embolden them for faithful labor for the rest of their lives. Ultimately, as we pray as pastors, that's our hope today, that's our hope every day, is that you would see the Savior, you would see Jesus as better than everything. That would lead you out of the goodness that overflows from that reality, your new reality. That would lead you to faithful obedience, not to earn His favor, not to make Him love you more, not to create a series of momentum. Okay, now i got some momentum of righteousness so that God can use me. No, He loves us. We are His. Therefore, we live a life of obedience. And in that obedience, fruitfulness comes. Not because of our faithfulness, but because He's told us to do it. Would God not do after He tells us what to do? Ultimately, that's our hope today. It's our hope every day. Sunday, every time we meet, every time we gather, we would remind each other, one, know Christ. Two, believe the gospel. And three, love people. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this revelation in your word. Thank you for this story not just a story, the factual evidence that this happened. God, thank you for this encounter where the disciples walking in likely disobedience, likely walking in not knowing what to do, they go to what's familiar to them. They go to the thing that maybe they're most confident in in the world out of their own strength and out of their own experience is fishing. You allow them to draw blank with fish all night. And then in a snap out of obedience to you, put their nets on the other side. And a ton of fish is caught. Thank you for Peter's example. That as he sees and realizes that the better purpose the better story is in front of him on the shore he forgets about the boat he forgets about the net full of fish and he jumps in i love that example and it's challenging challenging to confess when was the last time i jumped in after you father i pray that over these people over my brothers and sisters here. God, we would be a people that run after, run hard after you because we can't wait to be in your presence. If that marked us, Lord, 
I have to believe that the world would take notice. Two wonders here that we confess this morning is our worth, the value that you've placed on us by coming to earth and rescuing us, the worth that you have bestowed, but also our unworthiness, that we do not deserve an ounce of the blessing that you've given us, and yet you do. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for gospel, the gospel of John. Thank you for Peter. But most of all, we thank you for the patient love that you showed us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd love for you to just likely allow yourself to be in that setting with the disciples. It'd be against the fire code to light a charcoal fire in here, but I would if I could. Allow yourself to sit in reflection. You're going to have some people come by and, and hand out the elements for communion. Take it, but continue to pray. Continue to reflect on this. And then I'll close out with communion. Take a few moments. <clears throat>